Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the Central Park 5 series. If you haven't listened to part one, which is episode 52, I highly recommend listening to that episode first. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please join the almost 5,000 people that have liked and followed the True Blue Crimes Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future episode and a thank-you message from the host. Finally, for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. And just as an aside, we, I'll, I'll give the little brief rundown of what we talked about in part one uh, here in a second. Uh, this is, as I mentioned yesterday, a very polarizing case. Uh, there's a lot of different inflammatory topics that are going on here including race and police procedure as well as public money used for lawsuits all that kind of stuff so there's going to be parts in here that some people might not agree with in terms of the information that's out there i'm going to do my best to present it just as matter of the fact as possible focusing on the information that's out there and ultimately it's up to you to decide what you believe happened in this case there's really only at the end of the day six people i guess when we get down to the the bottom of this that know what happened that day and it's really up to those six people and Ultimately, I believe that they'll be uh, judged for how they live their lives, and we'll, we'll talk about how each of them have gone on to live their lives after this, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't have the truth as to what happened here. All I have is the facts that are reported, and again, that's what I'm going to do is relay those to you, and you can decide in the end what you think happened. Part one of this series covered the brutal crimes perpetrated on a select number of people that were enjoying Central Park in Manhattan on the evening of April 19, 1989. A large group of teenagers had attacked several joggers and and cyclists, and one woman named Trisha had been sexually assaulted and beaten to the point of near death. Police arrested a large number of teens that were in the park that night and whittled the suspects down to five boys that would go on trial for their crimes. Now, as we left part one, all five had been found guilty of crimes associated with the attacks that evening and were sentenced to an average of 10 years in prison or youth detention facilities. Raymond Santana was released in 1995, Antron McRae was released in 1996, and Kevin Richardson and Yusuf Salam were released in 1997. Corey Wise, the only one tried and convicted as an adult, had been serving his time in adult prison since he was 16 years old. He was subjected to so many attacks by other inmates that he requested to stay in isolation on several occasions. Wise also requested several transfers to other prisons to escape the violence. 
In 2001, during one of his stays at a new prison, he had a conversation with another inmate named Matthias Reyes, and they were serving time together in the Auburn Correctional Facility, and it's likely the two talked about their incarcerations. This was actually the second time they served time together. They had actually both been in Rikers Island in 1989 together, and they had gotten into a fight over what to watch on TV. However, this time, the conversation appeared to be more friendly, and Reyes, upon hearing Wise's story, approached a corrections officer and confessed that he was the person who attacked and raped Trisha Malie on the evening of April 19, 1989. He told officials he had committed the attack alone and that he was homeless at the time and had planned on burglarizing the woman's apartment to obtain cash and items to pawn. Reyes had been investigated for a rape that occurred only two days before the attack on Trisha, which was on April 17th, he sexually assaulted a woman in Central Park, but the DNA taken from that assault was never compared to the DNA from Trisha's case because Trisha's case was handled as a homicide and the other case was classified as a sexual assault. And remember, this is 1989, so even though they are collecting DNA, it's not widely used in the conviction process. and They didn't have a great way to uh, catalog it at that point. In fact, the NYPD did not have a DNA database at the time. So when they collected these uh, DNA results, they were just categorized by crime. So they had Reyes' DNA from the sexual assault, and they had Reyes' DNA from uh, Trisha's near homicide. And since hers was being treated as a homicide, that profile sat in the, the list of DNA uh, suspects for homicide, while his sexual assault DNA sample from the, the sexual assault the two days prior what was sitting in another file. And it said here that the NYPD established a DNA database in 1994. I read somewhere else it said 1996. So it's one of the two, but the samples would have been uploaded into files based on the original crime. So in this case, the two samples are going to be kept in separate areas. Reyes would be caught in 1989 after committing four known rapes and a homicide and was caught in the act trying to predate on a fifth woman. He was sentenced to 33 and a half years to life as a result of him pleading guilty to the homicide and the sexual assaults. Now, As the wheels of government and the courts moved slow, it took until 2002 for prosecutors in New York City to find out about Reyes' confession. When they were informed of the confession, they started a new investigation into the case and quickly found that Reyes' DNA profile was a 100% match to semen recovered from the scene of the crime against Trisha. In addition to the DNA evidence, Reyes confessed to parts of the crimes only known to the police and never released to the media. This was to include the way he tied up the victim with her own t-shirt, a method he used in some of his other attacks that summer. And I don't know that we've talked about it yet, but this is what they refer to as holdback information. So when they have a case, especially a high profile case, we're going to talk about the false confessions uh, later on in here. But sometimes when a case is very high profile, they will get people who are mentally disturbed or 
people looking for fame. Um, oftentimes it can be both. Uh, and these people will step forward and confess to a crime that they never did. And what the police are looking for is they're going to hold back certain aspects of the crime that only killer and the investigators on the scene would know. And if that person is able to provide those specific details, it's much more likely that they're the killer and it's not a false confession. Where if people are going to provide details that are inaccurate, it's more likely that it's going to be a false confession. So in this case, despite how big this case was, there were certain aspects of it, such as the victim being tied up with her own t-shirt, that was not released to the public. So when Rhea steps forward, not only does his DNA profile match, there's aspects of the crime scene that only he would know about, and he's the first person to tell the police these aspects. So they have pretty good idea that this is not a false confession at this point. Now, the investigation would reveal that it was most likely that Reyes acted alone, and something that he also backed up in his confession. And the investigation looked at the timeline and location of the attacks that evening, and it soon became apparent that the Central Park Five were likely much further south in the park, participating in the attacks on the male joggers when the attack on Trisha occurred. And Reyes was 17 at the time and had no affiliation with any of the other suspects. However, because the attack occurred in 1989 and the confession was made in 2001 and investigated in 2002, the statute of limitations for the crimes of sexual assault and assault had lapsed after five years. And this was pretty common, um, especially for crimes that occurred in the 80s and before that sexual assaults before the the dna became such a big part of the investigation solving a sexual assault after five years in most cases was next to impossible when prior to dna and then now post the use of dna they're finding in the case of like the Golden State Killer, they're finding DNA that was collected back in the 70s is still viable to be used against suspects today. So most, if not all, states have gotten rid of statute of limitations on crimes like sex assault and other crimes where evidence from decades ago can be used to still charge and convict someone of those crimes. But at the time, the statute of limitations for sexual assault was five years, which meant that Reyes could not be charged with the offenses against Trisha. And he would later claim he was not aware of this at the time and claimed to have only came forward because it was the right thing to do. However, this right thing to do is brought into question by some because at the time New York was running new DNA profiles against old cases and it's likely Reyes' DNA would eventually be matched to the assault. And some people claim he came forward because Wise had some sway in the prison and he wanted to gain favor with Wise. However, that doesn't exactly match up with Wise requesting prison transfers to avoid violence against him. And that's what you often find in this case is that it depends on which way you're looking at it. If you're looking at it, because uh, eventually it's going to come down to nobody denies that 
Reyes was involved in this attack, his his DNA and his confession makes it a hundred percent that he was the involved in the attack on Trisha. However, there's going to be a lot of people that ha, that decide to choose one side or the other, and that's that the Central Park Five did have a part in the attack on Trisha, and the other side saying that the two events are completely separate. So we're going to break that down a little bit as we go along here. And again, it's up to you to decide where you feel things lie. And ultimately, we all know that there's, as I said, about six people, the Central Park Five and Reyes, that know the truth to what happened that day. Upon hearing of the confession and the corroborating investigation, lawyers representing the Central Park Five filed to have their sentences vacated and be given relief. An investigation into the innocence of the Central Park Five was conducted, and this was different than the investigation into the guilt of Reyes in late 2002. And that's important. Again, they're not looking at it as a one or the other. The, the fact that Reyes is guilty of this crime does not immediately mean that the Central Park Five was not guilty. It just means that the case has to be looked at again and to see if the Central Park Five may have had some involvement in the attack on Trisha along with Reyes attacking Trisha. The investigation was led by an assistant district attorney named Nancy Ryan and was seen and this was seen as a potentially inflammatory choice due to a bad history between Ryan and the prosecuting attorney in the original trial. The two attorneys have been rivals, often battling for the same promotions. And the way I read it in the source material, this gets really confusing because it's talking about this prosecution structure and that kind of stuff. But it's possible that the case should have gone to Ryan originally, but ended up at her rival's feet due to the possibility that Trisha might die as a result of the attack. So just like in major police departments, you have your homicide division. Oftentimes you have some type of a robbery division. You've got a sex crimes division. Uh, I said in, in large departments like NYPD, Chicago, LA, you've got these these detectives and that's all they focus on is crimes related to either sex crimes or homicide or whatever it might be and it's the same way in these large district attorney offices as you have prosecuting lawyers that will only try sex crimes or will only try homicides and so when that decision was made that it looked like Trisha was going to not survive this attack and the fact it was treated from a homicide from the very beginning that meant that instead of going to the sex crimes uh, division it's it was going to go to homicide and there's a lot of politics in play inside of these police department large police departments and these large district attorney offices where people are battling especially on high profile cases their name gets out there in the media which can propel their career it can get them a a higher spot within uh, whether it's the department some type of a promotion or eventually for prosecuting attorney maybe a judgeship somewhere so 
all of this, there's these internal conflicts within these departments, uh, within these uh, district attorney offices. And so this is why it was an interesting choice because not saying that these two prosecutors weren't good prosecutors and, and couldn't handle cases well. It just, if you're given the case of somebody that you've had these promotional battles with and, and, and have history with, you've got some extra motivation, I guess, at that point to try to show that that other person didn't prosecute it correctly versus picking a impartial prosecutor who likely doesn't have the same emotional feelings attached that is going to look at it with a completely clean set of eyes. So again, that was why it was deemed to be somewhat inflammatory choice. Um, because it seemed to kind of create that unnecessary conflict of interest in what was already a highly publicized situation. The investigation focused on two aspects, and that was looking at the innocence of the suspects regarding Trisha's attack, as well as their charges involving the attack and robbery of John Laughlin. Because if you remember, when they were put on trial, they were put on trial for both. They were put, all put on trial for the attack on Trisha, and they were all put on the, on the trial for the attack and robbery of John Laughlin most of them were found not guilty of the attempted murder of Trisha, but were found guilty of some form of sexual assault on her. And all of them were found guilty of the attack and robbery of, of John Laughlin. And so the, of the as for the innocence regarding the attack on Trisha, there was some evidence that the suspects were not involved in the main crimes against Trisha. And this mainly comes down to they used witness statements to create a more accurate timeline to show that the this group of of suspects, the Central Park Five, were in other parts of the and areas of the park at the time of the sexual and physical assault on Trisha. And the recorded confessions were watched many times, and the high number of inconsistencies around the location, time, and involvement in the crimes against Trisha were noted and no two suspects gave quite the same information during their confession, at least in regards to their attack on Trisha, leading investigators now to believe the suspects were not telling their truth about their involvement, and this is because many believe they were not involved in the attack on Trisha. Ultimately, it was decided the convictions related uh, to the crimes against Trisha by the Central Park Five uh, all of those convictions should be overturned and that they should be exonerated on all related ongoing criminal penalties were removed. Um, this meant so because they had been convicted of sex crimes, uh, many of them, if not all of them, are, were required to register as sex offenders. So as a result of this investigation, they were all granted relief to any and all penalties from their convictions. So they were no longer sex offenders, Basically, it's as if they had not been found guilty of the crimes at all or had been basically as if they'd been acquitted of the crimes. However, when it came to their convictions for the crimes against the other park goers, Nancy Ryan and her team made the controversial decision to request that a judge exonerate them from those charges as well. And this set off a lot of public and police backlash against the investigation team because many understood exonerating them for the charges against Trisha because there was evidence out there to suggest that clearly they 
they were not the ones to leave the DNA behind, and Reyes is saying that he acted alone. But a lot less people understood the exoneration of the charges the suspects did seem to commit. It, it didn't ever seem to be under question, and, and that's the hard part about this case is a lot of stuff gets focused on the attack on Trisha, and rightfully so because it was such a brutal attack on her that somebody needed to be brought to justice for it the right person needed to be brought to justice for it but get, getting lost in the weeds is these attacks on these other people i mean john laughlin i think was described that he was beaten so bad it looked like somebody poured a bucket of blood on top of him and again he's just a guy going out for a jog just like trisha is the difference is you know, he's not sexually assaulted trisha is i'm not saying that sexual assault doesn't add a terrible component to the crime because it does but if these guys are out doing this stuff and there was evidence to suggest that they did and these guys all gave very specific concise matching confessions about the attacks on these other park goers the idea of exonerating them on charges of something that they did that didn't sit well with people and some NYPD detectives were very suspicious of Ryan and her findings. And this is because they claim that while they were attempting to interview Reyes after he gave his confession, Ryan's team forced them to stop their interview mid-interview in order to prevent them from getting any additional information from Reyes as to the possible involvement in the attack by the Central Park Five. So basically... There's two investigations going on after he confesses from from how I understood it. You've got Nancy Ryan and her team being assigned by the District Attorney of New York to investigate Reyes and the involvement of the Central Park Five. But as a police department, you also have now a new suspect in crimes that your department investigated. So it sounds like NYPD also wanted to investigate you know, Reyes, and they actually already had investigated him for these other crimes, these, these rapes and this murder that sent him to prison. So they're just looking to get as much information for the report as possible. And it does seem really strange that they would be shut down mid-interview by a prosecuting attorney that's also looking into the investigation. Now, I understand that she didn't exactly like how the original interviews and interrogations went with the Central Park Five, so maybe she was worried that these detectives could hurt any future case that she had. But at the same time, it's just one of those things you think the more information that you have, the more angles you can get at here, the better chance you have to get to the truth, which is anytime there's an attempt by the government to stop somebody from getting to the truth, that's when you get conspiracy theories. And we won't go down that road too far here. Um, I don't like to throw, you know, explore conspiracy theories where there isn't direct evidence to support or refute the, the theory. So I'm, I'm just going off what I'm presenting here as this is what the source material said happened again you can make your own decision on it
And at the same time the exonerations were going on, the NYPD commissioned a panel to review the case to see if the original investigation by NYPD had been done improperly or incorrectly. The panel was also allowed to offer changes in policy and procedure to ensure similar investigations and wrongful convictions did not occur. And the panel was chaired by a lawyer by the name of Michael Armstrong who had public support due to his involvement as chief counsel during the 1972 investigation into widespread corruption in the NYPD. And if anybody's aware of this, this is the, the Frank Serpico case where Serpico came forward basically exposing a large amount of corruption within the NYPD. And there was a, a large, large, large in investigation into the corruption. And the fact that this Michael Armstrong was the chief counsel it kind of made people believe he was going to try to get to the bottom of this because he wasn't afraid to ask the hard questions or expose things uh, just based on his previous investigations. But this modern panel would be referred to as the Armstrong Report, and by January of 2003, it had compiled a 43-page report on its findings. The panel explained in the report that they agreed with the exoneration of the sexual assault charges on Trisha due to the DNA evidence that suggested Ray's was the attacker for that crime. However, the panel felt that Trisha may have been attacked by the suspects and left in a vulnerable position to be assaulted by Reyes. It was the panel's opinion that the suspects participated in the crime at some level, either attacking first or even potentially holding down Trisha while Reyes sexually assaulted her. They claimed the only proof that Reyes acted alone was his own word, and the panel didn't put a lot of weight into his word. There were later claims that Reyes was threatened on several occasions by Wise and other associates of Wise to come clean and claim full responsibility for the assault and to say he acted alone. But again, diving into this is going to world of conspiracy theory about this case. The panel also stated that there were consistencies in the suspect's stories when they mentioned attacking the jogger and dragging her off the path and into the woods and molesting her, but after that is when the inconsistencies begin. Now there was a lot of disagreement with the panel's findings. Many felt the panel went to a great lengths to put forth possible scenarios, but didn't spend as much time finding the truth of the matter. And as for handling of the, mis of the investigation, the panel found no issue with how the investigation was handled. And despite the findings of the panel, McCray, Richardson, Salam, and Wise filed a lawsuit against the city of New York in 2003. They accused the police department of falsely arresting the teenagers in 1989 and prosecuting them maliciously due to their race. They sought a combined $52 million in damages from the city. The mayor at the time, Michael Bloomberg, refused to settle the case, claiming the NYPD acted in good faith in 1989 and conducted a full investigation and that the five defendants were granted a fair trial in which they were found guilty. The lawsuits were still in limbo in 2011 when a member of the city council took to the media to complain about the lack of settlement in the case. A member of the city's Council for Public Safety replied by stating that the police department arrested the men based on probable cause they had committed crimes. The suspects confessed to the crimes, and those confessions were upheld in a court of law and during two lengthy trials, and the city would refuse to settle. Then in 2014, newly elected Mayor Bill de Blasio, who had made 
settling the lawsuits a campaign promise announced the city would pay a combined $40 million in damages to the men. $7.1 million would be paid to Santana, Salam, McRae, and Richardson. The remaining $12.2 million went to Wise due to his extended sentence that lasted almost twice as long as the other suspects. The city refused to admit to any wrongdoing as a part of the settlement. After settling their lawsuit with the city, the suspects sued the state for incarcerating them. The first lawsuit was predicated on civil rights violations, and this lawsuit was based on emotional damages from the incarceration. The second lawsuit was settled in 2016 for a combined $3.9 million. There were mixed reactions to the lawsuits. Many NYPD officials who had worked on the original case went to the media, and in one case, an official leaked some of the statements made by the youth after their arrest in 1989. And this, I, I, I found the statements, and they are pretty compelling when you listen to them, I guess, or read them uh, just as they are. There, there is consistency in these youth statements stating that they attacked Trisha, they grabbed her while she was running and drug her off into the woods, they all held her down and, and molested her in certain ways. Uh, but in that, I think it was Wise, in his confession, state that, that he sexually assaulted uh, Trisha, which ultimately police would find no evidence of. So it's it's one of those things, that, how much do you believe? Are, are they Were they telling the truth back then? Or were these false confessions brought on by coercion by, by the police? And some of the original detectives would say that they went, despite what was put out there in the media about them railroading, coercing these these youths, they said that it was quite the opposite, that the youths wanted to talk about the crimes, and they brought them specifically, moved them from one precinct to another because this other precinct had a youth-friendly interrogation room that which is where the videotaped confessions occurred and the fact that they confessed with their parents there in in several of the cases they they pointed to all this stuff saying it's not like you know these confessions occurred in you know under duress or anything like that and again the the statements made during these confessions are pretty compelling if you're if you're reading them as a potential of what they did to Trisha, and that's ultimately what the jurors uh, listened to or, or heard in the courtroom. And I think public opinion you know, continued to teeter-totter as this information came out and as these lawsuits are paid. Now, a lot of people would look to the victim herself to see if she could provide any guidance, but she, we'll talk about in a little bit here, but with memory loss as a result of the attack she doesn't provide a lot of information but when trisha was in the hospital after the attack two of her treating physicians stated they didn't believe she could have suffered the injury she did at the hands of one person however this was disputed by a forensic pathologist in 1990 who said there was no way to tell how many people attacked trisha or if it was just one and this review or this view was repeated by another forensic pathologist in 2002. Trisha herself had no memory of the attack, but she felt in her heart that it was more than one person that attacked her, and she stated that she 
and preferred that the lawsuit go to trial over being settled out of court. And that's kind of a big thing here is I think more weight should have been given to the victim on this case. When politicians get involved and make campaign promises, I think they oftentimes forget the impact that this has on other members of society to include the victims. And I am would have been fine if this lawsuit had gone to court. I think there was a lot of good evidence on the part of the the Central Park Five to show that what they were ultimately charged with and in some cases found guilty of uh, were things that they could not have done. And so I think they had some standing to bring this lawsuit to court. However, by settling out of court, none of that stuff is out there in the public because civil cases are different than criminal cases. In criminal cases, you need beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to have a judgment, whereas in civil cases, just a preponderance of the evidence. And so basically, you just have to tip the scales in the favor of people believing that what you're saying is, is possibly the truth. But I think in a civil trial with depositions and different information made available there would be a lot more public information in regards to how this was handled by the police and evidence for or against the central park five but because it was settled out of court none of that happened so i definitely side with trisha on this one saying this would have been better going to going to court and going before a jury to decide if the central park five not only deserve to pay out, but how much they deserved. Now, as I mentioned in part one, there's going to be some inflammatory political figures in this, and once again, Donald Trump would uh, appear as a part of this story uh, on several occasions here, but in 2014, he commented that the settlement was a disgrace and he felt the men were guilty. He told people that they should listen to the detectives that worked the case and not believe that just because the case had settled, the suspects were innocent. Now, he would repeat this during his 2016 presidential campaign, stating again that he felt the men were guilty and they should not have been exonerated on their charges. Other politicians attacked Trump for his views and stated he was making outrageous statements about innocent men. The late Senator John McCain was particularly upset with Trump and cited Trump's outspokenness about the Central Park Five as one of the many reasons he withdrew his endorsement of Trump. Under pressure in 2019, then-President Trump would step back and apologize for his statements. However, he would state the Central Park Five admitted their guilt. Now, the main victim in this case, as Trisha Malai, made an almost full recovery despite being given last rites in the hospital after it was believed she would not survive the attack. After 12 days in a coma, she awoke, but was unable to walk, read, or talk. After seven weeks of treatment, she was transferred to a long-term rehabilitation center where she continued her recovery. Within four months of the attack, she was back to jogging and continues to exercise today. She wrote a memoir in 2003 titled, I Am the Central Park Jogger, A Story of Hope and Possibility. And she is now an inspirational speaker and works with victims of sexual assault and brain injuries at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan.
She still has no memory of the attack or the weeks after the attack and suffers from memory loss to this day. The men of the Central Park Five all went on to live their lives after their exonerations. Yusuf Salam went on to become a board member of the Innocence Project. His main goal was to reform the criminal justice system, especially for youth offenders. He worked with politicians to enact laws that would support his goals. One law requires all police interrogations to be recorded from start to finish, and this law took effect in 2018. The other law requires police officers to go through training to prevent misidentification. He has worked as a motivational speaker, and as recently as June of 2023, he won the nomination for a council position in New York's 9th District. Antron McRae became a forklift operator and currently lives in Georgia with his wife and six children. Kevin Richardson has advocated with other members for criminal justice reform, including protecting people against false confessions and eyewitness misidentifications. Raymond Santana was released in 1995, but was found guilty of possessing crack cocaine in 1998, and based on his previous convictions, he was sentenced to 3.5 to 7 years. When his assault convictions were exonerated, it made the crack cocaine offense a first-time offense, and he was released from prison on the drug charges. Upon his release, he started a clothing company in New York. Corey Wise was able to find some employment after his release and currently resides in New York City and works for criminal justice reform. He donated almost 200000 from his settlement to the Innocence Project. In 2023, the Central Park Five came back into the news after word of Donald Trump's indictment. Salam issued a one-word statement of karma and ran a full-page ad in the New York Times, just as Trump had done in 1989. His ad said, bring back justice and fairness, build a brighter future for Harlem. Santana took to social media to tell people to never forget Trump's actions. The ongoing legacy of the Central Park Five is the attention brought to false confessions and the need for recorded police interrogations. As I mentioned before, certain members of society, to include the mentally ill and the youth, are, are particularly susceptible to making false confessions, and the undoing of these confessions can be difficult, if not impossible, and can hurt both the people making the false confessions and the investigation itself. The case also highlighted the importance of DNA comparison in cases with limited evidence, marginal eyewitness testimony, and the possibility of false confessions. As of 2016, according to the Innocence Project, 343 people in America have been exonerated of major crimes due to DNA analysis, and of those cases, 27% had offered false confessions. And this will go back to, again, this idea of false confessions is hard for some people to wrap their head around, but there are people that under the strain of a police interrogation where they're in there. And it, again, it can be for hours upon hours upon hours that eventually just to put an end to the interrogation, they will admit to something they didn't do. There's other people that will flat out admit to it without having any involvement in it. And as I mentioned, when you have cases with limited evidence, a confession is a very powerful part of that case. And if it's a false confession, that not only hurts, obviously, the person who made the false confession, but it hurts the investigation because 
let's say eventually evidence like in this case shows that that person that made the false confession didn't commit the crime you're claiming they did down the road if you do find somebody that knew that fits the crime better their defense attorney is just going to say look it was the other guy they got it right the first time around that guy even confessed to it and now you're saying my client is the one that's responsible for it he did he's not even confessing to it so it, it can definitely hurt the investigation by getting a false confession out of somebody and so it is important for police to have training in in preventing those false confessions and the power of proper evidence proper dna evidence and other types of evidence that when you put it all together you have a much stronger case in the central park five case was just one of many sexual assaults and robberies that occurred in new york city that week alone many complained that the central park crime took front stage while many other similar crimes were committed that didn't get very much media attention at all some pointed to an obvious racial bias by the media using the young white female victim card to sell the story while ignoring similar crimes committed against minorities. One case in particular involved a black female who was beaten, raped, and then thrown off a five-story building but would survive the 50-foot fall. Three men were arrested for that crime, which were two 17-year-olds and a 22-year-old, but while they received similar sentences, the case wasn't as widely covered. Originally, Trump and other New York politicians and elites were blasted by members of the black community for failing to show compassion for this victim like he had for Trisha. But eventually Trump would visit the victim in the hospital and even offer to pay all of her medical bills. And this is what's difficult when you get into this, this racial um, covering of cases at least from the standpoint i mean i don't disagree at all that a lot of cases uh, crimes against uh, minorities are not covered at the same level and that's something that definitely needs to change but what's really difficult is sometimes i don't think the correct cases are picked to highlight or to to show the differences here i think this this case was picked by members of the minority communities to highlight and I don't know that it's the best case just because there's a little bit of apples and oranges comparison here and I think the main thing is that one of the reasons the story gained so much traction is that it occurred in Central Park which is supposed to be the safe place this utopia for all people to come and and enjoy exercise and get into nature and again you're supposed to feel safe there and i'm not saying that this this woman this other victim didn't deserve to feel safe wherever she was at it's just that the central park is a public place and when somebody is attacked in central park it doesn't matter their the race of that victim i mean i don't even know i know at least one of the victims was hispanic in the uh, that was assaulted by this group one of the male joggers but um i don't know the race of the other joggers but really at least in terms of the overall story if you remove race from it it's still a very dynamic story and i think that's why it's a little bit of a of an unfair comparison between the two stories if if it had been 
that a, a black female jogger was attacked two days later in the same exact fashion as Trisha and the story didn't get as much coverage 100 percent that's that's a great example of how we need to change in media and i'm not saying we don't need to change with our media coverage of, of crimes i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying when you pick crimes to compare them to you unless you find something that's really really similar sometimes you can actually you know lose that battle to a certain degree by by picking the wrong one but that being said again the the fact that i don't have nearly as much information to cover about the the woman thrown from the five-story building is definitely points towards the fact that there is a media bias in how they cover crimes at least they did in 1989 and i believe it's still in place today and that's something that needs to change and despite the case being over 30 years old, it's still talked about today. Some feel the suspects committed enough crimes that evening to justify the jail time they served. Others feel they were railroaded and used as scapegoats to appease the angry mob that was New York. Ultimately, I just hope this case serves to teach us all something about personal responsibility and the importance of fact-based investigating and recorded police interviews and interrogations. So for my final thoughts, to be honest, I'm pretty undecided on this entire case. I can see the evidence that suggests the Central Park Five committed other crimes that day, and I can also see some evidence that they could have had a hand in the attack on Trisha that day. It's hard to weigh the fact that they were found guilty in a court of law against the crimes that or against the claims that Reyes acted alone, especially since the original interrogations weren't recorded, and as far as I can tell, there's no public report that proves that Reyes acted alone and so that's what I'm saying at the end of all of this despite all the hours I've researched this case and looked into different source materials for it I can't at the end of today tell you that I 100% believe that the Central Park Five had nothing to do with the attack on Trisha but I also can't tell you I 100% believe that they did have something to do with an attack on Trisha I do believe that they made some poor decisions that day in going into the park and attacking these other joggers. And I do feel like at least those convictions should have stayed on their record if there was evidence, strong evidence to suggest that they were involved in those attacks. I'm okay with them being exonerated from the charges against Trisha because I don't think there was enough evidence to prove in a court of law, especially after what evidence was presented against Reyes, to prove that they conspired with Reyes to attack Trisha or that they attacked Trisha and she was left there and then was set upon by Reyes. I don't think there's enough evidence to prove any of those theories or even disprove them at this point. So I'm okay with the exoneration of the charges there, but I'm with the other NYPD detectives saying that they should have never been exonerated on the attacks on the other people if it's true that their confessions are consistent and everything in those regards so but that is it for the case of the central park five thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true blue crime productions gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions so that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.